Well, good morning, Trinity. Uh, if you're a visitor, you should know that you are joining us in the middle of a sermon series on the Apostle John's first epistle. And what we've learned so far is that John loves his people. And John loves this group of churches that were in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. Now, some weird things were going on in those churches, and people were feeling pretty uncertain about their faith. And so into that context, John says, listen, everyone, I have seen and spoken with Jesus. In fact, he's my best friend. And here are some ways to know that you know him. Here are ways to know that you know him. And then John gives us a few tests for our self-examination. He gives us a, a behavior test, a love test, and a doctrine test. And so last week, we looked at this love test, and we concluded that if you have had a train wreck with the love of God, then it has to leave a mark. You can't walk away with an encounter with God's love unscathed, or better yet, unchanged. Love for God and love for one another has to be coursing through your veins if you're a Christian. Now, our passage today picks up at the end of that section, but with the same motivation of loving God and loving others, he's going to say, do not love the world. Now, that's a, that's a very confusing thing to say, considering the fact that John, the same guy who wrote the gospel of John, says there, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. So what, God loves the world, but we're supposed to reject the world? Now, my goal this morning is to kind of help untangle this, but let me say this at the very outset. The church, historically speaking, has really messed this up. And part of the reason for the church's confusion and the sort of love-hate relationship with the world is because we misunderstand God's heart. So let me, uh, let me set this up in our introduction with a paradigm. I learned this from a Dr. Greg Thompson, and then we'll get into the details of this passage. But think about it like this. Before there was anything, before Genesis chapter 1, there was God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And within the Godhead, the Trinity, they shared perfect love. And from the overflow of their love, they made the universe. They created all things. And the question is, why? Certainly they don't need anything. And it's because he longs, God longs to invite the creation into this Trinitarian divine love. God can be understood as a longing host. He is inviting all of his creation into this sacred love, into this ancient love. Now, understanding God as a host who is inviting us into the divine life is the primary way, the primary filter for understanding God. Now, the problem is, is that the church has substituted that primary filter for lesser filters. For instance, some people primarily understand God as a judge. Well, God is a judge, but he acts as a judge when there are agents and people and obstacles that are keeping people from his divine love. In other words, God's vocation as a judge is in service to his vocation as a host. Other people primarily understand God as a healer. Well, God is a healer, 
But his vocation as a healer is employed in order to enable people to enter into his divine love. The healing is for the sake of entering into this love, not an end to itself. In fact, on occasion, God the healer will afflict people in order to help them enter into this love. The Trinitarian God is a host inviting us into the divine life. But when we elevate these other aspects of God, we end up with a very distorted vision of him. If the church sees God primarily as a judge, then it will have contempt towards the world. It will adopt practices of fortification, right? An us versus them mentality. It will hide in Christian ghettos and move into angry irrelevance. Those churches do not invite, they dominate. And on the other hand, if the church adopts a therapeutic version of God, a healing version, a therapeutic version, it loses the gospel, and in turn, it turns into a self-help message. It is simply accommodating the culture by becoming like the culture in this case. And, in, and when that happens, when it's man-centered, there is no invitation to be made. God is a loving host and longing, even anxiously like a star-crossed lover, longing for the world to enter into the divine life through Christ. Now, with that framework in mind, we turn our attention back to the question we began with. Does God love the world or not? Are we, the church, called to love the world or not love the world? Well, the Apostle John uses this word world in very different senses, and, and I'm going to work through that as we go. But if you don't have this framework as God as a host, then you will be prone to really bad theology and bad exegesis of our passage. So let's turn our attention now to the, uh, the end of John's love test. John wants us to love the Father and love others, but he recognizes that there's a kind of misdirected love for the world that will derail that love. So let's examine this passage. We're going to examine it under two imperatives. That we must work intensely to fill ourselves with the love of God. And we also must work just as intensely to not fill ourselves with love for the world. So with that introduction, would you, in reverence to God's word, stand with me. And let's give careful attention to 1 John. It's in your bulletin, chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever." The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will endure forever. May bless it for you and for me. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, tell me if you've ever had this conversation with your buddy who's sitting in the passenger seat of your car with his phone open with Google Maps up. And it goes something like this. Turn left here. Oh, right here? No, left. I mean, I mean right. Left here? Right. Uh, the word right is a complex and highly contextual word, isn't it? Or on January 1st, I look at Amanda and I say, well, babe, 
I'm going to do it. This year, I'm going to cut out sugar. Uh, and she looks at me skeptically, and she says, right. To which she means wrong, right? But we all understand that the word right has very different senses and meanings. No one needs to make that argument. Well, all the commentators will tell you that that is the same case with this word world, right? Sometimes the word world, uh, sometimes John is speaking about the whole, like, created order. That means that John is talking about the material universe, which includes people and cultural artifacts and molecules. And sometimes, as is the case in our text, it describes... Um, something that's not material at all. Sometimes it describes an evil mentality or a system prevalent in the world. Look at verse 15, the first part. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. It's a mentality. So what is this mentality? This mentality is worldliness. See, Christians should love the world but not be worldly. It's the system that's being rejected here. Worldliness is a vision of the world that concludes that the world itself is where we find our joy and satisfaction and security. John will have none of this because joy, satisfaction, security is supposed to come from God. And yet people are tempted to find it in this material universe. And so John continues in verse 15. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, why would John be like so sharp? Right? Well, it's because authentic love for God exists only. It exists only when there are no essential rivals. You remember the very first of the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods beside me. When there are other gods, other sources of joy, satisfaction, security, then the love of the Father is not in that person. In fact, love of the world is in that person. Now, in the second point, we're going to look at some examples of how that happens. But what interests me in this first point is how we get the love of the Father in us. In us. That's a, an, an interesting preposition, isn't it? We want that love in us. So how do we do that? Well, Jesus says, he says, if you love me, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So clearly there is this way that we work out this love as we work it into our hearts. So loving God is not just about singing romantic songs, right? It's, a, it's not just a feeling. It's an act of the will. Obey his commands means loving what God loves, and so here we are again. God so loved the world. So in what sense do we love the world without becoming worldly? Well, let me offer some, uh, some ways, which by no means is going to be exhaustive, but this requires a little bit of theology up front, all right, guys? So follow me. So God made the world, and after each day of creation, after each day of making this material universe, uh, he spoke a word of blessing over it. He looked at the stars and the moon and the mountains and the sea and the birds and the trees and the fish and the land beasts. And he said, it is good. God gives his physical and material universe his stamp of approval. 
And then he made man and woman. He made their physical bodies. And he made them in his image. And he declares a blessing over them again. And this time he says, and it was very good. This means that all humans have unique and intrinsic dignity. God loves the material universe, which includes us. And humans were made like God in the sense that we're creative and moral and, and rational. So when all the walls came, came crumbling down because Adam and Eve committed cosmic sedition against God, God did not give up. Why? Because God so loves the world. He's, he set into motion a plan to, to redeem it and to restore it. In fact, the very picture in the Bible of heaven and the new heavens and the new earth is a material world where God and man walk together again just like they did in the garden. So loving the world means working for its redemption. Now, because some people have misunderstood John's meaning to hate the world, they imagine the sort of dualism between the spiritual and the physical. Christians, and now listen, particularly in the 20th century, began to withdraw from the world. This is like a fortification mentality. They disdain culture. They think that social action is pointless, that only saving souls matter. And so they say things like, well, who cares, right? It's all just going to burn. Or maybe you've heard it like this. Isn't that just like polishing silver on the Titanic, right? Now that, that mentality is a far cry from Jeremiah, the, the prophet's words, or really the historic vision of the church, which Jeremiah says, seek the welfare of the city in which you reside. And in its welfare, you will find your own welfare. See, so many great human accomplishments comes from Christians who believe that God so loved the world that we should seek its redemption. Hospitals and universities and science the greatest symphonies ever written, the most majestic works of art and literature. But we began to misunderstand passages like this one, and we forget God's longing to invite all things into the divine life. And what happened is that it created a secular, sacred split. The sacred work is reserved for priests and pastors who want to save bodiless souls. But the rest of you... Your days are just about earning a paycheck, but they're otherwise meaningless. Listen to me, you guys. That is a lie. All of life is sacred. It's not less than human souls, but it's more than that. When you create economy, when you create jobs, when you execute justice or care for the environment, when you write music, or paint beautiful works of art, or even the mundane, like when you change a diaper, you are restoring and redeeming the material world. You, when you do that, you are participating in God's fundamental longing to reestablish all of creation back into proper relationship with him. This is why, you guys, there's this thing called a Protestant work ethic, Right? We are all God's priests mediating his goodness to the whole world. The apostle Peter calls us a priesthood of believers, working in God's world with diligence and excellence and cheerfulness. 
Your life matters. Your work matters. Your days matter. They're brimming with eternal purpose, right? Every day that you clock on this island, you can be sure that God brought you here for eternal purpose. When you work with God in this plan of redemption, and this is a mystery, but you are investing in things that will last for 100 billion years and even into eternity. How do you know that the love of the Father is in you? It's because you love what the Father loves, and the Father so loved the world. He spoke blessing over it. He gave his Son for it. All of it will be redeemed, and you and I have the sacred vocation of working in our separate corners of the world, according to our talents and callings, to restore it and to soak it with the divine life. You see. Now let's pivot here for just a moment. So what we said is that we want the Father's love in us, but we do not want love of love for the world in us. And this is what we want to look at next. So we've distinguished between the world as the, the created universe and then the world as the system that says that the world is all that there is and in it is this, your source of joy, satisfaction, and security. Right? That's the definition of worldliness. Um, therefore, in that sense, we really need to hate the world. Right? You've got to get, get militant. You've got to get serious about this. I love how Tim Keller says it. He says, we want to love the world without becoming worldly. And in fact, love for the world, in that sense, will absolutely derail your love for the Father because you can't have both. Imagine, imagine a young law school student who loves the law. She's an amazing student. She, like most students, doesn't make a lot of money. But with the little that she has, she gets in early and she invests in a startup, all right? Now, over the course of her career, she excels at law and even becomes a judge, right? She makes vows to uphold the law, to be loyal to the law. Now, equally successful is her investment that she made with this startup, right? In fact, it's blown up like Amazon style here, okay? She is now profoundly, but profoundly wealthy. Then one day, a major case is filed against this company, this very company that has made her rich, and this particular case finds itself being litigated in her courtroom. So there she is. On one hand, she loves the law, right? She made vows to uphold the law. But on the other hand, if this company loses in court, she will completely lose her fortune. She will lose what she perceives to be her security. Can she rule against this company? Can she rule against herself? Can you see the problem? See, this judge has hidden interests. Her love for the law has been leveled. It's been relativized. And in fact, it will be virtually impossible to not interpret the details of the case in a way that, do not, that, that doesn't protect her interests or what she perceives to be her security. Why? Why? Because she has a divided heart, divided loves. See, listen, the Apostle John sees this phenomena in all of us. John is clear. You cannot have 
the love of the Father in you, while at the same time have love of the world in you. One will derail the other because they're competing interests. You must hate the world in that sense. And in verse 16, he explains why. Look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. So in this verse, John introduces these three categories. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride of life. Now at first, that that can sound a little bit vague, but they're really helpful. And here's why. No one wakes up one day and says, you know what? I want to be worldly. You know, I, I want to look at my bank account, and I want it to define me. I want it to let me know if I'm safe. You know, I want to, I want to look at my body and let it tell me my worth. I mean, who talks like that? No one talks like that. But it happens. It just happens slowly. Let me explain. We have said that worldliness is when we look to something in this world to give us something that only God can give us. And we insist that it give us joy, satisfaction, and security. So John says that there are these these things that come from the world that pose or they stand in as gods. These are false gods or idols that they're they're awakened uh, by our lusts and cravings. So in the Greek, there is this really important word that's repeated all throughout the New Testament. But you see it two times just in verse 16. Our translators use the word desire. Or maybe some, some of your translators say lust or craving. But in the Greek, it is epithemia. And that's a compound word, which means over-desire. So we all have desires, but these desires become monstrous when they are disordered. So St. Augustine, or Augustine, depending on how you want to say it, in his book Confession, he speaks about these disordinate desires in detail. So Augustine speaks about his life prior to Christ. So if you know much about him, he lived this sort of unrestrained life of decadence. He saw in himself these natural desires, right? Uh, He looked at food and drink, for instance. And we, we need food to live. It's a good desire, But what happens when you use your food to control your mood? Or or, or what happens when you use your drink as a strategy for coping? What happens when you use food to hide or drink to make yourself go numb? At that moment, an ordinary desire becomes an over-desire of the flesh, says Augustine. You are demanding that something in this world do for you that only God can do. When we go through this, honestly, we do this exercise, I just did with food and drink, with anything. Think about like sexual desire, right? Desires turn into destructive, enslaving, over-desires and cravings. So that's desires of the flesh. John also talks about desires of the eyes, desires of the eyes. Uh, in the ancient world, uh, the eye was understood as a lamp of sorts with the ability to mislead. It is a window or a portal into the soul often associated with greed. So Jesus makes this association himself in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon of the Mount. A worldly person with his eye looks at money and says, my relationship to my money is what gives me security and value. 
Now remember, no one, no one thinks they have an over-desire for money. No one wakes up saying, hey, I probably have an over-desire for money. So we need, a, we need a little diagnostic. We need a question. Where do you put your money? Do you invest in things that are outside of your administrative control? Or... Or, 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 do you, or also, do you, do you invest in things that will have value 100 billion years from now? Or do you invest in your own personal interests, things that maybe make you feel secure? Are you world-loving or are you worldly? And then there, of course, there's this category of the pride of life. This is on the other side of the coin with uh, pride, uh, excuse me, lust or desire of the eye. Um, the pride of life is not simply an inordinate desire for material possessions, but it's when you allow those possessions and accolades to tell you who you are. So like um, you're somebody because you live in a certain neighborhood or you're somebody because of your professional accolades and achievements. And if those things were taken away from you and, and you had to live on a humble salary and, and live in a two-bedroom apartment, you might not know who you are anymore. You would be lost. Why? The misguided pride of life. Are you world-loving or are you worldly? John wants the love of the Father to soak your soul, but he knows that your love, he knows that if the love of the world is in you, your love for the Father will get hedged out. That divine love will be sabotaged. Listen, the Lord loves you. He wants to give you joy, satisfaction, security. Those things truly are on offer to us. But in the words of C.S. Lewis, God cannot give us joy, satisfaction, and security apart from himself because there is no such thing. There is no such thing. All right, let me quickly conclude. So we've said that God so loved the world, but if you and I love the system of the world, we will become worldly instead of world-loving and that will derail our love for the Father. So the Apostle John insists that we must work passionately to get the love of the Father in us while also working equally passionately to keep the love of the world out, right? So how do we get this love of the Father deep in our hearts? I think the key is in verse 17, the third verse in our passage this morning. It says, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. He's saying, if you are fill, filled with these temporary desires, if, that, if these temporary desires fill you, it will all disintegrate and you with it. And I'm not just talking about heaven and hell. I'm talking about this present life. If your ultimate hope and joy is tethered to something in this material universe, then your hope and joy is so fragile because everything will ultimately be stripped from you. But the will of God abides forever. 
And what is God's will? It is the Father's will that all people join in this banquet of love found in the divine life of God. This is an invitation to dive into this love. This is an, an eternal love that will, not, that will not pass away, but eternity can be folded into our present life now. That's the key. Your life must be grafted into this trajectory of eternity, right? You and I must keep our eyes on the horizon of eternity. Christ Jesus, in his high priestly, priestly prayer that's found in John 17, he prays these words for us. He says to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So ironically, when we are enmeshed in this world, we become fragile and ineffective at loving the world. The way to love this world is by longing for the next, right? Because God's will abides forever. When our deepest longings, listen, you guys, when our deepest longings find their destination in this worldly system, we become ineffective at loving the world. But you know what's even more scary? Is what happens when we get exactly what we want from this world? What happens when we get all the money? What happens when we get that job? Is that the pinnacle of self-realization? And you guys can testify to this, but that is actually the beginning of a hellish sadness of the soul. You know people who have the sadness of the soul that won't let up. Why? Because our hearts yearn for something that cannot be found here. Let's love the Father by letting go of these souvenirs of impermanent earth merch, right? Like cheap swag at a dumb convention. It chokes out your love for the Father. And Jesus stops being beautiful to you. Let me just conclude with a quote from C.S. Lewis. He writes this in his book, The Problem of Pain. He writes, The mold in which a key is made would be a strange thing if you've never seen a key. And the key itself would be a strange thing if you've never seen a lock. Your soul has a curious shape because it is hollow made to fit a particular swelling in the infinite contours of the divine substance or a key to unlock one of the doors in the house with many mansions. Your place in heaven will seem to be made for you and you alone because you were made for it, made for it, stitch by stitch, as a glove is made for a hand. Oh, loving the Father is not just this Christianly dutiful thing to do. Loving the Father is what creates your most profound, deepest human flourishing. That's what John wants for you. That's what I want for you. Amen.